Okay, okay, okay. Voice of the late great Robert Nesta, Bob Marley. And I want to say hello, hello to all of my listeners, all the people who take time out to tune in to World Conspiracy Talk Show with your host, Andrew P. And we are back again, one more time again, on the Conspiracy Trail and the Conspiracy Saga. 
Okay. And I want to say enough respect goes out. And I want to say enough respect goes out to all the people who take time out to listen to the World Conspiracy Talk Show. Okay. Because you could have done anything else with your valuable, precious time. And I want to say good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night, midday, midnight, hours of morning, whatever the time may be in your time zone, in your region, in your part of the world. And today on the World Conspiracy Talk Show, we have a lot of interesting topics, a lot of delicate issues, things which concern we the people out here in the world. And you know, on a real conspiracy talk show, we deal with real, real issues. No make-believe Hollywood fiction stories, no myths, no believe. Okay, we deal with the real facts, real conspiracy sagas. And we are the real conspiracy talk show because we do not teach people about alien landing in Roswell or that Queen Elizabeth is a reptilian lizard. Okay, we deal with the straight facts, straight issues. And the views in which we share is not just the views of the World Conspiracy Talk Show or the host Andrew P, but also the views of millions and billions of people out here in the world. And also the views we share may be conflicting to many other people and their views according to their teachings and customs and ways of belief and maybe how the deep state and the elite and the institution has given the people certain things the people hold fast to it. So views which we share may be conflicting to many people and their views. Okay. And as you can see, we start out with the late, great Robert Nesta Bob Marley. And the title of the song is War, War. And as we can see, the world is in serious crisis. Not just a financial crisis or just a corona, so-called COVID-19 virus crisis, but also war in the air, war in the atmosphere, war drums beat loud not just in one corner or one region of the world, but in many parts. As we can see, war drums in Washington beat for war in South China Sea. And as we see South China, we see China elites is also beating their war drums. Okay, so serious issues over there in the East China Sea. And also, not just the East China Sea with just Washington, but also with, Indian, with India, Japan, Taiwan, Vietnam, and many other more surrounding countries within the same East China Sea region. Okay? Over small islands and natural resources and many other things. And if we may move the scope a little and pay great attention to over there in the Mediterranean Sea, there is new development, which I have shared this on CastBox already, 
and World Conspiracy Talk Show. I have shared it in a couple more episodes already. For people was to look out a couple months ago and even longer, I have done it in a couple episodes, making the people being aware of great development is to come over there in the Mediterranean Sea with Turkey and Greece over Cyprus and other region in the Mediterranean, which it's all lead back to gas and natural resources again. Okay, said as in the South China Sea, it's not just Spradley Islands and other things which the Chinese have been accused of is causing the war alone. It all have to do with gas and many other natural resources which the deep state, the elite, the co-corporate media is keeping these things suppressed. So as we can see the development with Greece and Turkey over Cyprus and other region in the Mediterranean Sea. And we can see where France has even get involved from long time and draw their lines with Greece. Cyrus threat to Engram and Turkey, the Ottomans, and now France is going a, a bit further than just Cyrus threat. France is planning to deploy troops if they are not in the Mediterranean Sea already. They are planning to deploy troops in the aid and defense of Greece. So serious world conspiracy, deep, deep world controversy. And you're listening to the World Conspiracy Talk Show with your host, Andrew P. and the conspiracy saga as it get better and better, deeper and deeper. Okay, so with no more further delay, we get the program started. So here goes the Mediterranean standoff. Here we go. February 2018, an Italian oil company found something in the eastern Mediterranean. A huge gas field right off the coast of Cyprus. This field was part of the region's vast gas deposits, estimated to be as big as three and a half trillion cubic meters. That's enough potential energy to power the United States for nearly a decade. Tension is mounting in the eastern Mediterranean over these discoveries as countries vie for control in an area rich with unclaimed resources. The potential for military action is rising as neighbors forge new alliances and old wounds flare up in the regional scramble to secure energy rights for the coming century and beyond. It's no surprise that everyone in the region wants as big a piece of the pie as they can get. And for the most part, they've all claimed their shares. Egypt has started to exploit its oil and gas reserves and is now a regional exporter. Europe has long been wanting to cut its reliance on Russian gas and the energy-hungry trading bloc would be an ideal market for Eastern Mediterranean natural gas. So what's the sticking point? The main cause of friction here is Cyprus and the overlapping and competing claims different groups have made over it. Since the bloody conflict took place in 1974, the island has remained divided between Greek and Turkish Cypriots. The southern half, the majority Greek Republic of Cyprus, is recognized by the United Nations. The Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus is not internationally recognized, but its autonomy is nonetheless guaranteed by Turkey. 
relations have got so bad between the fractious neighbors that both sides have threatened military action to defend what they say are their territorial rights over the sea. Normally, these territorial rights are defined by the UN's Convention of the Law of the Sea. This document allocates up to 12 nautical miles from any nation's shore as its territorial waters and up to 200 nautical miles as its EEZ or exclusive economic zone. As the name suggests, anything found in or under the ocean out to this distance is its own, exclusively. But unlike Greece, the Republic of Cyprus, and most of the world's nations, Turkey did not sign that UN convention. Instead, it has its own way of deciding limits of EEZs. Turkey uses the continental shelf theory, which says that a country's landmass, and therefore the EEZ, extends underwater to the very edge of the continental shelf. Using this theory, they refuse to accept that islands can have these zones. They say any island's influence is only as far as 12 nautical miles. These two calculation methods have triggered a cascade of claim and counterclaim. Early last year, the energy ministers of Cyprus, Greece, Egypt, Jordan, Israel, and Palestine all met in Cairo to discuss cooperation and the setting up of the East Med Gas Forum. Turkey was pointedly not invited. Cyprus um, has taken steps in order to um, delineate its exclusive economic zones. It's planning in the future when it will be feasible to export its gas uh, through a pipeline, the famous East Med pipeline, that to transport Israeli and Cypriot, Cypriot gas to Greece and further to European Union markets. It's a rather contested project. It's a very expensive project. It will be the lengthiest uh, undersea pipeline in the world, almost 2,000 kilometers. These are highly symbolic acts. Whether the pipeline would happen or not, it shows that there is an agreement. It shows that there is a strong cooperation between Cyprus, Egypt, and Israel uh, in the area. Turkey is feeling diplomatically isolated and left out of this emerging system of cooperation. With a rapidly growing population and a reliance on imports for 90% of its natural gas, Turkey is desperate to secure its own regional supplies. By refusing to acknowledge Cyprus's EEZ, Turkey does also not accept the bilateral deals Cyprus has made with Greece, Lebanon, Egypt, and Israel. Instead, Turkey has made its own deals. With its large armed forces, Turkey is now involved not just in northern Syria, but also in the rapidly expanding war in Libya. In November, Turkey and UN-recognized Government of National Accord of Libya signed a bilateral maritime deal that carved up a large portion of the eastern Mediterranean between them. Using their continental shelf method, they allocated themselves blocks for drilling and gas exploration. But several of these blocks were just off the Greek islands of Crete and Carpathos. This immediately invoked heavy condemnation from Greece and the international community as not only illegal, but a major destabilizing move. Turkey's go-it-alone attitude is upsetting its neighbors. Last December, it sent armed drones to mine over exploration ships in contested waters. In May, a French aircraft carrier conducted drills off the coast of the island when France felt Turkey had encroached on an area French oil companies were themselves exploring. In a clear message to Ankara, the United States announced in July that it would start training the Cypriot military. Turkey has now said it will send exploration ships into the contested blocks off Crete within months. With Greece responding, 
I save those vessels will be sunk. With so much at stake and so much wealth and security to be had, the region stands to greatly benefit if everyone's interests are satisfied. The Cypriot Republic has already requested a ruling from the International Court of Justice in The Hague on its and Turkey's overlapping claims, and both parties have much to gain from cooperation. However, as it stands, a single incident could unravel this tense and fragile peace, triggering a cascade of events that could easily draw the region into a devastating war. Okay, okay, there you go, there you have it, there you add tensions in the Mediterranean Sea between Turkey and Greece over Cyprus and oil and other resources in the Mediterranean Sea, okay. So there goes the world conspiracy, there goes the world controversy, and there goes the world saga. So war drums beat loud out here in the world. And as we can see, there is development also. There are developments also in other few regions in the world, including including the South China Sea and quite other few places. And don't forget you are listening to the World Conspiracy Talk Show with your host Andrew P and the Conspiracy Saga and the controversy saga okay and as we continue to look at quite a few more issues surrounding the greece turkey standoff which as we can also see france has also included within the battle so France has now reported that they are sending military support to the Mediterranean Sea in strengthening of Greece. Okay, helicopter carriers and quite a other few things. No doubt, no joke, no believe. No doubt, no joke, no myths, no Hollywood fiction or anything like that. Real, real things right in front of our own eyes. A fight over control of the Mediterranean Sea, Libya and Turkey. So these countries had made up their mind to go to war over natural resources and few other things. Mostly have to do with natural resources, which is claimed to be in the Mediterranean Sea. Because as you can see, it's not just Turkey, but Greece is also 
having their expedition ships out there and not just Greece but also France. And who else to know? Who else can tell who may be operating in the Mediterranean Sea, which the deep state conglomerate media is not making us, we the people, aware? So serious, serious issues which is about to unfold right and we the people out here in the world. No joke about these things. And don't forget you're listening to the World Conspiracy Talk Show with your host, Andrew P. And here goes as we continue on the conspiracy saga. storm is brewing in the eastern Mediterranean, and strangely enough, it's two NATO allies that are stoking the tensions. Greece and Turkey have sent warships to an area southwest of Cyprus in an effort to reinforce their claims to oil and gas resources in the area. France has dispatched its own naval vessel in support of Greece. With Turkey already at odds with France and other Middle Eastern powers over Libya, could Erdogan's military adventurism spark a wider escalation? Our title today, Turkey versus Greece. Is Erdogan willing to risk war? Welcome to To The Point, and here are our guests. Galip Dalai is an expert on Turkish foreign policy and a fellow at the Robert Bosch Academy in Berlin. And he says, in this conflict, Greece is using the language of international law and European solidarity, and Turkey is using the language of fair sharing of Mediterranean resources and coercive diplomacy. It's also a pleasure to welcome Chara Özdemir. He works for Deutsche Welle, and he is convinced that unlike Turkey's adventurous regional ambitions in recent years, its foreign policy regarding the Eastern Mediterranean is following its traditional line. And we're also very glad to have with us Yasemin Ergin. She is a freelance journalist from Hamburg who works mainly with the ARD network. She says Erdogan's hardline approach in the Eastern Mediterranean is part of his symbolic politics with which he tries to distract from domestic problems. In the current conflict, he's taking this strategy too far. So let me start out with you, um, Chara, and get your take on how combustible this situation really is. In mid-August, Greek and Turkish warships actually collided in the eastern Mediterranean. We're hearing some pretty martial rhetoric, and some experts are saying this, in fact, is uh, the highest level of tension we have seen between these two countries since 1974. Would you see it that way? Um, the way that you put it as combustible, I think, is a way, way to use it. And um, Turkey, in the past, uh, when it comes to the um, matters regarding the agency and the Mediterranean, um, never um, had a second thought uh, about um, engaging with Greece if uh, the use of force is necessary. So we've seen that, as you pointed out in Cyprus, that everybody thought that Turkey was bluffing regarding that. And we've seen that almost to two countries at the brink of war in 1996, when there was this uh, almost military escalation between the two countries over 
a small landmass, a small islet on the Aegean Sea. And uh, right now we're seeing um, a repeat of that. And um, if we look at the Turkish foreign policy regarding the maritime matters over the area, um, Turkey never changed its stance over that. And um, and since it doesn't recognize the UN Convention on the Sea of Law, which Greece a part of it and Turkey is not, and this is escalating the situation because of the maritime borders and territorial waters and where do you, you draw the lines. So Turkey always said that it's, a, it's an act of war if Greece goes beyond the line because basically what Greece is claiming by extending its territorial waters is to kind of corner Turkey over a point and Turkey just is not willing to accept that and okay. is willing to use a force if necessary. I don't so, think a war, but like a battle maybe. So yes, I mean, we're hearing this is part of a long-standing pattern uh, is what Char is telling us. Would you say it's more explosive than past incidents in that pattern? Um, in relation to Greece, it is more explosive than his than Erdogan's policy and his rhetoric has been. Um, is it more explosive when we look at the bigger picture of um, Turkey's foreign policy? Um, it's certainly more dangerous. It's unprecedented because um, he's risking two NATO allies going to war. Does he really mean it? I'm not sure. I don't think Turkey actually wants war. I think um, Turkey knows very well that international mediation will step in. Turkey knows that the EU will make efforts, that Germany will make efforts, that the US, even though they have their own issues at the moment, will also not want this conflict. So I think Erdogan is using his aggressive rhetorics because it always helps him domestically, but it, at the same time, he is relying on international diplomacy. Um, as we can see, in while Erdogan is using aggressive rhetorics, his foreign minister has expressed at the same time that uh, Turkey is ready for negotiations. So. So let me come back, uh, Gavitalai, to what you said in your opening statement about the language of international law and fair sharing of Mediterranean resources. As we heard there from Chara, uh, both sides uh, citing uh, international maritime law, law of the sea, and so on. Turkey says Greece is manipulating international law to hem Turkey's right to oil and gas resources uh, in the Mediterranean to a very small corner of the Gulf of Antalya. But is that even possible? Isn't international law clear on this point? No, it's not clear. Like on the one hand, yes, it is clear, but the international law is also like open to interpretation and different interpretations. So in this regard, the language that is both sides are using are still having its reference from the international law, but with different reference points. For instance, like you know, Turkey argues that it is the it is the uh, mainland, not the island, that can have the territorial water uh, that that can have the economic exclusive zone. I mean, yes, within the international law of the like, economic zone being the area, of course, where a country could then explore. Exactly, for exactly. So, given the fact that the Greece has like a very large number of the uh, islands in Mediterranean, I mean, uh, I think it's as high as over one thousand islands. So, if everyone claims the uh, exclusive economic zones, that effectively means that Turkey 
is very much you know confined to the gulf of antalya and then from the turkish perspective this is akin to a maritime blockade in a sense like you know that you have like a very limited uh, very limited uh, area so in this regard this policy is actually has much more continuity from turkey's side than uh, many uh, many things let's not forget it was the turkish parliament in 1995 that declared that if greece is going to increase the maritime water from six miles to 12 miles that will be like a cause for war so in this regard this policy has more uh, continuity and both of them have like reference point to different form of legitimacy and here you are right now you see the conflicting you know different claim of legitimacy and different idea of what the sharing of the resources should be so wow 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 so there you go wow 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 there you go deep deep world conspiracy deep deep controversy so not just turkey and france but also greece so it's three country within the same european union block who are declaring to go to war over the Mediterranean island gas and resources. Deep, deep, deep world conspiracy. Deep, deep controversy. And as we can see, these countries are part of the EU, also part of the UN. These leading countries out here, part of the UN and the EU, we have seen these people sanction countries for less things than that we have seen countries being invaded for less things than that we have seen banks in russia and other places and businesses being sanctioned and all sort of things being slapped on them for less things than those so these un eu they're all over the world, backed by America, leading country, bombing other people countries, doing all sorts of things in the name of restoring others and everything. But right in their backyard, there is three of their own, own members who are about to go to fight over natural resources. And these things didn't develop overnight just last week or today. These things were in the making for a long, long time, but has been keep suppressed by the media conglomerate with the deep state elites. So deep, deep world conspiracy, deep, deep controversy. And as I said, many of country out in the world have been sanctioned for less of things than that. Embargoment has been brought on many countries out in the world for less less things than those and as you can see cyprus is split into two half half of the cyprus people are greeks and the other half are turks real real conspiracy real controversy and these border jew restriction were set up by none other than the UN themselves. 
these exclusive economical zones were set up by the UN themselves, where they deliberately cut out Turkey and give most of the economical access zones and islands and things to Greece. Deep, deep world conspiracy, deep, deep controversy. So the Turks are refusing the deal. And a matter of fact, the Turks was not part of the deal who signed that deal back in the days. This was imposed on the people by Greece and the UN, backed by France. That's why France is so heavily in the midst of it, huff and puffing more than even Greece themselves. Deep world conspiracy, deep, deep controversy. So affliction started not just the 2020 in this year, but things were starting to develop from a long, long time ago. Not just now. Long, long time ago. Okay. So just shift the scope a little and pay key attention to pay key attention to other regions and other parts of the world. Say for instance the South China Sea. There have been a lot of things has been saying in the media. A lot of rhetorics has been showing on both sides, both China, both the United States, and both other countries in which China is in dispute over border and other things with. But are these countries in a position to turn back China doings or is it all just a deep state media conglomerate co-corporate world conspirators plan because so far out of all the threat the development the building up of military troops aircraft carrier new plane France new Raphael American new plane new this the Chinese have not seems to even blink at or even wink. They are steadily holding fast towards their plan. A matter of fact, right now they are over there in the South China Sea practicing military drill drills with live firing, live rounds, live armor, live missiles. So here we goes with no more further delay. And with no more interruption and with no more doubts or myths or belief or curiosity in our own brains or no more personal belief mind game here goes the real and real truth and issue and fact of the chinese military and the united states military and others so here we go, with no more further delay, pay key attention and listen to this piece of audio with an open ears and a free mind. So here we go on the World Conspiracy Saga Saga.
China seems to be in the US crosshairs a lot lately. But this video isn't about politics. Hypothetically speaking, if all this political posturing does result in a hot war between the two, just how much damage could the US do to China? Is marching with a land army to Beijing an option? China seems to be in the US crosshairs a lot lately. But this video isn't about politics. Hypothetically speaking, if all this political posturing does result in a hot war between the two, just how much damage could the US do to China? Is marching with a land army to Beijing an option? And what would it take for such a wild operation bringing the war to mainland China to succeed? The US and China's war would likely pull other countries into the conflict. While actual results are hard to predict, they're interesting to model in games, like in Conflict of Nations, sponsoring this video. It's a free online strategy game I enjoy. You choose a country to lead and take over the world. Define your own strategy, build powerful armies by combining dozens of different modern unit types. There's various kinds of infantry, tanks, planes and ships. You fight up to 64 other players in real time and bink of viewers are getting a special gift. Click on the link below in the video description to get 13,000 gold and one month of premium subscription for free. More about the game after our video. Back to our hypothetical war. The future is unpredictable, so this war is set to late 2020. Taking Chinese mainland is a complex topic, so much so that the crucial geopolitical aspect of it all will be discussed in a separate later video. China has a bigger ground force in terms of active soldiers. The US National Guard is a combat reserve formation, but with more training than usual reserves, US or Chinese ones, as the rest are mostly support units, not combat units. The Chinese militia reservist formation also has some 2 million armed troops doing at least some training. But all those figures would not come into play until the air war and war on the seas are settled. The US has quite a bit more active service planes. Chinese figures are realistic case estimates. Neither side has reserve units planes included, except for the US Air National Guard units, as those are closer to active service quality. The technological edge is also apparent. The US has 13 times more stealth planes, almost 4 times more fighters with modern radars, and almost 2 times more large fighters. On the seas, the disparity is even more pronounced. The list shows only commissioned ships. The carriers are not so useful to China in a defensive role. US ships are generally bigger and carry more weapons, though China has many more coastal ships which could interfere with US Navy assaults. Submarine numbers are almost the same, but Chinese subs are smaller and less advanced. A big issue for the US is access to nearby ports and air bases. Without those, the US force projection might drop quite a bit. This video will assume Japanese cooperation when it comes to US bases. Other variants of the scenario with more or fewer allies will be covered in a later video. The US carrier fleet would provide only a smaller part of the overall US combat aircraft numbers. Any big ship needs a lot of downtime. Even if most could be surged at once, that would be detrimental to later numbers important in a long-term war against China. Planes too need maintenance. Realistically, there might be only 4 to 6 air wings on 4 to 6 carriers near China once the US is ready to start its attack. 
and if six are searched, that number would likely keep falling during the first year due to downtime issues. Similarly, four or five small carriers would be the limit for the likes of the Harrier or F-35B, if used as carriers, but those ships might be more effective as assault ships, with just a few jets each. Basically, some 400 combat planes would be the top limit the US could field from their carriers. On the other hand, the US Air Force already has that many planes near China, most of those in its Japanese bases and on Guam. As the naval forces assemble near China, the US Air Force could add a few thousand more land-based aircraft in various existing bases, but also new bases in Japan and perhaps even Australia. Various commercial airports repurposed into combat airbases would be a common feature. Perhaps even new additional runways and whole bases might spring up within months. The US might eventually be fielding over 2,000 combat planes on Japanese soil, basically all of the US Air Force, if needed. So the basing area would not be an issue if Japan can be counted on. But the issue of distance would still remain. To reach the Chinese coast, there is still the East China Sea to cover. Bases like those on Okinawa are very close by, but that also means they would be the first to be hit by China. It's unlikely such bases would survive. Also, China is a big country. Reaching one part doesn't mean the same plane could easily reach another part of China. While the Shanghai region would be the most exposed to the US attacks, the approach to Beijing, for example, would be protected by land masses left and right. Even in-air refueling could not really help there, as trying to refuel just a few hundred miles of Chinese coasts would likely end in tanker interceptions. And trying to provide air superiority anywhere in southern China would be extremely hard due to the extreme distances. Now, all these distances, even doing 1,000 miles, let alone crossing 2,000 miles from Tokyo to Hainan Island, are very hard to do for most planes. The realistic combat radius of most planes would be 500 to 800 miles, when taking into account bomb loads, supersonic dashes, and possible low-altitude approaches to targets. But that's before the US starts to use its one massive advantage, its vast fleet of in-air refueling tankers. Using those, the US would be able to effectively double or sometimes almost triple the stated range figures. The capacity figure shown is a theoretical one. At any given time, there would be only a few hundred planes in the air at once. Still, it's evident that with, say, two refuelings on the way out and two more on the way back for each plane, even the South China Sea could be covered. Such extreme missions would be impossible to sustain on a prolonged massive scale, and would likely be used for strikes on fixed targets. Fighter combat air patrol, interceptions or striking targets of opportunity would not work over such distances. All those tanker planes would be quite vulnerable to various Chinese missile strikes. They're very large and quite hard to protect or even hide. They might partially hide amongst various parked commercial airliners though. But extreme distance cuts both ways. Placing those tankers away from China would cut into their refueling capability, but it might protect them, as China doesn't actually have that many standoff missiles of long reach. Their impressive arsenal is primarily designed against closer targets, such as Taiwan. When targeting the Tokyo area or Guam, only a few hundred ballistic missiles would be able to reach them. Of course, the calculus changes for targets in Japan if Russia, for example, just tacitly allows Chinese to shoot over their territory. It would be very hard to keep this kind of war from growing into a world war.
Trying to hunt down all the launch platforms would be impossible in a timely manner, but the US would more than reciprocitate with its own standoff missile arsenal. Most cruise missiles are subsonic and easier to shoot down if flying a straight route to target. In practice, their useful range would be less, as they fly various roundabout routes. Ballistic missiles do fly a straight route, maximizing range. They rely on their very high speed and altitude to avoid interceptions. But the US has been developing anti-ballistic missile systems against such weapons. The systems such as Patriot Pac-3 would try to protect against shorter-ranged and slower ballistic missiles. THAAD batteries and Aegis SM-3 missiles would protect against the really fast missiles. The Navy's BMD ships would be crucial for protecting various land sites, augmenting other defenses. All such systems would only try to intercept the incoming missiles, with various success rates. THAAD and SM-3 had roughly 80% success rate in testing. In actual war conditions with saturation attacks, it's likely two or even three interceptors would be needed per each incoming missile. Although standoff missile strikes would hardly make a dent on the massive battlefield with hundreds of thousands of various targets. They would slow down the enemy and temporarily shut down some bases and factories. Weeks would be needed to fire them all, with some targets getting repaired in the meantime. Japan too has some Pac-3 missiles, but their biggest addition would really be their own protective shield. Besides their air force, they have a robust SAM network, and their naval ships add many more anti-air systems as well. If China tried to use its air force in a continuous campaign against the US and Japanese forces on the Japanese mainland, it would face bigger numbers, better tech, and a lot of SAM systems against it. Long term, it would be suicidal for China. So it would probably save those planes for only occasional strikes of opportunity, for defense, and perhaps for taking out some key bases closer to China, like Okinawa and some of the other nearby islands, bombing them and attempting assaults on them. The Chinese landing fleet has been growing over the decades and is very much suited to disembark tens of thousands of troops to such nearby locations. After some months, once the US assembles its assets in huge numbers, the blue side would commence its campaign into China. But there's a lot of defenses the US would need to go through before they could hope to reach the Chinese shores. Chinese naval expansion has focused a lot on air defenses. Their fleet is now capable of projecting a defensive SAM umbrella some distance from the coastline. Even the frigates are capable as they use missiles that cover altitudes of some 12 miles up. Basically, no US non-stealthy plane could fly close to them without getting threatened. The US would likely take it very slow with their invasion. Pushing too much at once usually means too many unnecessary casualties. Even if China takes some islands, there would be no rush to take them back. But the Chinese Navy would likely stick to their shores and enjoy the added protection of their air forces and even their land-based air defenses. And China does have a lot of those. Even the older systems could come in handy, of course, as there might not always be enough jammers and decoys available for the US. If the approach routes to China are limited by a lack of allied countries, most of those SAMs could be concentrated in a fairly small area, providing formidable overlap defenses. Early warning and airborne radars would add to the shown figure. The concentration of SAMs and radars might initially be such that even stealth aircraft could not hope to fly over the coastline without getting so close to a radar that would either threaten them directly or would direct fighter interceptors to them.
Besides the ground warning network, China has been improving their aerial radar fleet. While the very local situational awareness in an air battle might be on the US side due to the technology edge, the broader situational awareness might favor the Chinese. They would have many land, sea and air-based radars tracking the enemies. The closer the US would go to the Chinese coastline, the less it could depend on both sea-based and air-based radars like AWACS. Massive air battles would ensue, at first near the coastline. While the US might very well have more planes fairly nearby, in actual localized clashes, there might be instances where the Chinese fighters outnumber them. That's because sending a thousand fighters at once and organizing them all to receive ample in-air refueling would be way too unwieldy. Adding in Chinese SAMs, the US force going for the coastline might have to rely on tech superiority rather than on numbers. Numbers here are totals of active service planes for both sides. Not all would be available for missions at the same time, especially for the US. The list shown is rough, so two planes within the same rank are not necessarily of the same capability. Both sides would use bombers as missile trucks. Only the stealthy US B-2s might try flying over targets and sometimes remaining alive. The US tech edge over China has been eroding. Chinese are equipped with very modern missiles, radars and jammers. Given the other factors as well, the US might be losing a dozen planes per day. Positive kill rates against Chinese planes would not be assured. But the US does have more planes. At some point, probably well past the six months mark, the Chinese air forces would be severely depleted and unable to control the skies near the coastline, while the US would likely still have some 2,000 combat planes remaining depending on the size of its overall alliance. While China could save some of its forces by simply not trying to protect the coastline, that would be disastrous for its economy in the long run. A huge chunk of everything important in China is located near the coastline. Both sides' navies would suffer major losses during the said time frame. To be efficient, the US carriers would need to get close. Many escort ships would likely suffer defending those carriers. Inevitably, at least a few US supercarriers themselves would get sunk. And if the US Navy presses on too early, even half of the US carrier fleet might be neutralized. The Chinese have over the years assembled a dedicated network for locating and tracking carriers. Out in the ocean, that would be harder, but within the first island chain, satellites, underwater sonar networks, various drones and probably the most powerful coastal-based anti-shipping force in the world would inflict serious losses. US submarines would be most lethal at torpedo ranges. Neighboring seas are not ideal for fast attacking submaneuvers. They're shallow and the subs can't dive deep to hide beneath the thermocline layer, which usually protects subs from long-range sonar in open oceans. The Chinese have also built up their anti-submarine capabilities. Most of their new large ships have towed and variable depth sonars, and half of their corvettes are of the anti-submarine variant. Aerial assets would aid in the submarine hunt in the opening stages of the war, while the Chinese numbers could still provide cover. Threat levels and the fact US destroyers might not be risked going forward to hunt for Chinese subs would mean the US subs would largely rely on airborne protection only, or they wouldn't go so close to China at all. In theory, the US does have a vast fleet of anti-submarine aircraft, but only a small portion of those might survive operating near Chinese shores. China's own submarines are mostly diesel-electric, but they wouldn't need to sail far. 
they could practically wait or very slowly and silently prod forward, hoping to ambush the enemy ships or subs. Depending on just how aggressive the US Navy would be with their submarine use, perhaps even half of the US sub fleet might perish before the war ends. Of course, much of the Chinese Navy would be sunk by then. Besides taking back Okinawa, the US might take South China Sea Islands. Over the decades, Chinese have built up whole islands on some rocks there. There are at least seven island bases, with three to four being able to operate combat aircraft. They are sort of unsinkable and repairable aircraft carriers, but that all applies up until the point the islands themselves can be kept supplied. Months into the war, when the Chinese Air Force is forced to retreat, those islands would become a liability. The Chinese Navy could try to protect them on its own, but it would be exposed to still plentiful US forces. Eventually, China would likely retreat from those islands. The islands are tiny and not fit to support many troops over a long time on their own. They would also come in handy to the US after it takes them. They could become staging grounds for an attempted invasion of Hainan Island. Why there? Because islands are inherently easier to take than actually disembarking on the Chinese mainland. It would still be a huge undertaking. Hainan is close to the mainland. The nearby peninsula does mean the mainland connection is small and would likely be cramped with various hardware. It would be easier for US air power to suppress. The island itself is huge very populated and with its own production. There could very well be a few hundred thousand Chinese troops there, stocked in advance to last for years. Additional resupply by small low-flying aircraft or tiny boats would likely go on despite US efforts, as the US would not be able to park its ships right next to the Chinese mainland. The US assault force is fairly large, but it too has limits. The airborne assault force would still be somewhat limited by distance, even using the newly captured SCS airfields. The US might fall short of the troop numbers needed to secure a beachhead. Assuming an optimistic 75% of all amphibious ships and 50% of plane fleet capacity, the first wave might hope to land some 50,000 troops, with subsequent waves landing much fewer, as more and more supplies need to be landed as well. Though the bigger issue would be continuous losses to the US landing ship fleet. Compared to the Normandy landings, for example, the US would not nearly be enjoying the same air superiority, control of the littoral waters, the same element of surprise, or even local numerical superiority on the ground. It's likely such an assault would either fail, ending in 100,000 US soldiers lost, or succeed, sort of, losing almost as many US soldiers, the professional core of the US assault force, and many of its hardware assets all for taking one island and neutralizing or capturing 300 or so thousand Chinese troops. In the grand scheme of things, it would mean the US would be unable to attempt such a huge scale assault anywhere else for a year, and China would have plenty of time to train replacement troops. Is there a better place to perform a landing? No, but of all the worst places, the Shandong Peninsula might be the least bad. It too would prevent China from attacking the landed force from many sides. It's even fairly close to Japan, so the infrastructure supporting the planes and ships making cycles to Shandong might allow for somewhat quicker accumulation of a larger landing force. The problem is, the Chinese forces channeled there would basically have no limits to their numbers. All the heavy hardware, like artillery and tanks, could be sent there and supplied, and China has a big edge in heavy hardware compared to the US, 
especially to what the US could actually land on enemy shores, as aircraft would basically land only very light vehicles and even the ships would be landing a few hundred tanks and IFVs at best. Artillery firepower actually landed on the beaches would also be lacking for the US. Attack helicopters would be few in numbers, mostly Marine Corps assets, with only some Army Apaches. The US forces would eventually be driven into the sea, with US local firepower significantly lacking. The US Air Force would be roughly halved by then. What's left of it would be operating over quite some distance to support the landings. That means even fewer planes actually on patrol for combat air support. Ships that would be close enough to provide artillery cover would also be close enough to be hit by Chinese missiles. So would reaching Beijing even be feasible for the US? No. While some extra level of surprise could be had if the US tried landing elsewhere, ultimately it would mean a longer route to Beijing and a landing zone that's even farther away from US bases, meaning a smaller landing force fighting a Chinese response force that would not be limited by the constraints of a peninsula. Realistically, the only way to successfully go into China and reach Beijing would be by a multi-year war, amassing allies and amassing a huge land force to fight through via a long, bloody land route, counting on industrial supremacy of the alliance. Would that actually be politically possible is very questionable. Okay. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Okay. So there you have all the ups and downs, all the surrounding issues of conflict with China and the US. So it's very clear and <clears throat> so it's very clear and evident to all that the US cannot successfully invade China on their own. They can't even take piece of territory on mainland China and keep it without help of a massive world coalition forces with good financial support behind it. So the US stand no chance against even scratching mainland China without go to a nuclear war which that would be even more devastated because the Chinese possess many nukes they have even tested their recent upgraded one which takes 25 minutes if not less to reach America. So deep, deep, deep world conspiracy, deep controversy. So the US is in no position to threaten mainland China. It's all CNN and these station who are working with the deep state and the elites and the government cooked up stories. So it will take a big world collision, a big massive collision to try to pull off such stunt and it will not happen. It will take years of consuming war, heavy casualty on both sides, if not more on the US side. Because with a full equipped, fully trained, 
full advance army rapidly expanding and developing like china pla and their national army it's not a walkover like afghanistan and iraq and these countries all the heat that washington can show at these people they can show back the same amount of heat so this would be like a good fight to sit and watch mike tyson against evander holyfield it can go anyway both ways but in the invasion of china it will not go in washington way it will take a full world coalition forces and years of war to even reach peace of mainland china deep deep world conspiracy deep 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 controversy so all these building up and deployments of troops is just to try and scared or frighten the chinese elites over there and the pla army and rich we have seen those tactics have been failed fail miserable because they have not even blinked nor wink it has even made them stand more fast and all steady to what they are doing don't forget you are listening to the world conspiracy talk show with your host andrew p and the conspiracy radio and share fm radio and we will be back again later on in the day with more developments and many other side of the world and many other issues concerning these things and many many more things okay so the same way in which we come it's the same way we are going to leave with the right honorable nesta robert marley bob marley until so until we meet again and greet again and hear from each other take care of yourself all my listeners safe travel upon the gravel peace and love okay
Okay, there goes vice of late great Robert Nesta Bob Marley. Okay, natural mystic flowing through the air. No lie about that. Naturally, naturally mystic flowing through the air. And as you can see, today's topic of discussion is war. War, war, war in the east, war in the west, war in Mediterranean, war in South China Sea, war in Libya, war all over. And don't forget it's a world conspiracy talk show with your host Andrew P. As we get deeper and deeper, better and better as the conspiracy saga continues. So here goes, renewing, renewing India-China border tensions, serious world conspiracy, here goes more world controversy. So let's take a look on what's going on over there and the border conflict, renewing border conflict between China and India. So here goes. Here we go one more time again. War in the east, war in the west, war on border patrol, war over island gold, war over land and soul. Here we go. Now this blue lake that you will see behind me, high in the Himalayas, is the scene of an unfolding military standoff between India and China. Troops from both countries stationed along the banks of the Pangong Lake have now accused each other of firing shots. If true, it would be the first time in more than four decades that shots have been fired on the disputed border. It's a border that stretches for some 3,500 kilometers and is undemarcated. Since May, troops from both countries have been amassing at various points after both sides accused the other of violating each other's claimed territory. I'll be getting the view from India and China in a bit, but first, a quick primer on what's been happening since May. 
a remote mountain region for which soldiers have died and superpowers faced off. Tuesday's incident along India's Ladakh border with China risks a fresh standoff in one of the world's most explosive border conflicts. The red line marks the boundary around 3,500 kilometers long between these nuclear-armed rivals. Known as the Line of Actual Control, or LAC, it is not a hard border. China and India have never agreed on where it should lie. Tensions began soaring in May. Both sides assembled troops in the area amid reports that Chinese soldiers had crossed the borders at various points and set up camps on territory claimed by India. China ordered its military to prepare for, quote, worst-case scenarios in the area. On June 15th, the two sides clashed on a steep mountainside. Twenty Indian soldiers were killed, with Chinese casualties unknown. Firearms had been banned to prevent escalation, but Chinese troops allegedly used weapons like iron-spiked rods in hand-to-hand -hand combat. An Indian source passed this image to the BBC. The deadly clashes sparked protests across India. Demonstrators burned effigies of Chinese leader Xi Jinping and demanded boycotts of Chinese goods. Beijing said it was defending its territorial integrity, accusing Indian troops of crossing the border twice and provoking Chinese soldiers. And tensions have not subsided since, as India's army chief confirmed just a few days ago. Well, the situation along the LAC is uh, slightly tense, uh, keeping in view uh, of the situation, we had undertaken some precautionary deployments for our own safety and security. And these deployments we undertook along the LAC. Both sides traded blame for Tuesday's incident, each saying the other had fired the shots. So what happens next? Anand Krishnan is China correspondent for the Hindu newspaper and author of the book India's China Challenge. And Victor Gao is vice president of the Center for China and Globalization and a man who knows the thinking in China's Communist Party. Welcome to you both, gentlemen. Mr. Gao, I'd like to begin with you first. China has called India's alleged moves in the Pangong Lake area a grave military provocation. What does China expect to see happen next? to ease tensions? Well, we understand tensions are rising uh, along the disputed line of actual control between China and India in the western part of their border. And uh, this does not bode well. Uh, from the Chinese perspective, China does not want to have a war with India. And China wants to do whatever it can to calm down the situation, to negotiate or um, talk about a solution or coming down of the tensions but it doesn't seem that the situation is going that way and it is learned that firing happened on the Indian side which actually broke a record of almost 40 years this is very alarming I personally do not want to see any flaring up of tension or military conflicts between China and India which I've called two superpopulations in the world. They need to have peace and stability rather than war and conflicts. We need to have peace and stability. Anand Krishnan in Chennai, how can peace and stability be achieved? 
I think that's the question. And I think the latest events that we've seen in the last few days are worrying for two reasons. The first is it's a new front. And we've already had four or five different spots along the LAC where there's been high tension since May. And of course, we had the terrible loss of life on June 15th in the Galwan Valley. And I think this new sector in south of Pangong Lake shows that all the talks that both sides have been having haven't really achieved much headway. Rather than diffuse the situation, we're now having a new front. And I think that's extremely worrying. And as Victor said, I think that the fact that it's firing for the first time since 1975 is a huge concern. The Indian Army said that uh, the Chinese side had fired first in trying to dislodge uh, India's forward positions. Uh, the Chinese have said India fired first, so it's a classic case of uh, he said, she said. But I think looking forward, uh, one can only hope that the talks between India's External Affairs Minister S. Jai Shankar and his counterpart Wang Yi tomorrow in Moscow hopefully uh, can pave the way for some kind of understanding between the two sides. But I'm a little concerned only because we've had talks at various levels between NSAs, foreign ministers, defense ministers since May. And so far, there's very little reason for optimism, I'm afraid. Let, let's see uh, what Victor Gao has to say on that. Victor Gao, as Anant mentioned, uh, lots of rounds of talks. There have been something like five uh, rounds of talks as far as uh, ground commanders are concerned. NSA-level talks have happened, as Anant mentioned. What exactly is China expecting from these foreign uh, minister-level talks that are due to be held in uh, Moscow? Well, I think China wants to have as many talks as needed to avoid a war or military conflict between China and India, uh, because China does not want to have a war. But it doesn't mean that China is afraid of a war against India, for example. We truly believe that neither India nor China should be involved in a war against each other, the two largest populations in the world. So I think China will be very, very patient in talking to the Indian side to rationalize everything and to give out the pros and cons of peace versus war, for example. And I hope India will also be rational and will be reasonable and will not be pushed forward by another big power, which may actually have its own geopolitical schemes try to right. promote a war between India. Victor, you almost make it sound like the solutions uh, lie entirely with India. What would you have India do? No, I think uh, uh, both China and India need to calm down and withdraw from the line of actual control, which may actually cause more tensions to rise. And both sides need to have cool head rather than rednecks, as we sometimes call, to agitate the situation and to promote the getting out of the control or getting out of right. the proportion of the friction points on the ground, which is very, very dangerous. If uh, control of the situation is lost in the western section of China-Indian border, right. I assume it will also be lost in the eastern section. More than 2,000 kilometers long of border between China and India may be up in great conflict. And this will drag down both India and China for many years. Right, and most of that border uh, still appears to be undemarcated and unresolved. And here is where I come to you, Anand. You've been a foreign correspondent in China for a number of years. What, according to you, is the reason this border remains unresolved for so many decades?
the Chinese like to say it's leftover from history. But I think the biggest problem has been that uh, China has, for many reasons, uh, stalled on demarcating the line of actual control. So this is uh, different from settling the dispute, which of course is going to be very complicated, given that uh, territory is something that uh, evokes emotions of both countries. But I think the most rational thing for both sides to do is to sit and clarify the LAC and their different perceptions of the LAC, rather than settle the boundary. And by doing that, they can avoid the kind of incidents we've seen uh, since May. And frankly speaking, uh, for many years, I've tried to figure out why China doesn't want to clarify the LAC. They seem to prefer ambiguity. And I think that that really hasn't helped the situation. And the one point that I would make uh, since May, I think the biggest problem has been a mismatch between what we've been hearing from Chinese officials about wanting peace and the actions of the PLA on the ground. There seems to be a huge gulf. And the biggest, I think, evidence of that is since May, India has lost access to about 1,000 square kilometers where it used to patrol previously. Right. And I think that really shows uh, where uh, the, the changes have been made on the ground unilaterally to the, the very the tense situation that we had previously. And I think going back to what it was before May is something that India would demand in the talks that will be had uh, in the next few days. Victor Gao, last question to you. Is China playing a double game? No, I don't think so. I think as to what happened in the deep night of June the 15th, even Prime Minister Modi of India said that the Chinese military was not on the Indian side of the uh, line of actual control. Right. And uh, if you really look into specifics, you will know it was the Indian soldiers penetrating into the Chinese side of the LAC and uh, 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 resulting in a brawl and resulting in about 20 soldiers losing their life. Now, we need to be very specific. We need to be very pragmatic in terms of dealing with this very uh, inflammatory situation uh, right. along the China LAC. But the mega trend is that both China and India need to embrace peace and stability rather than being agitated one way or another onto right. a very, very destructive path of war and conflict. We'll have to leave it there for the time being, but thank you so much for joining us, gentlemen Anant Krishnan in Chennai and Victor Gao in Beijing. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, okay. Okay, okie dokie, ho ho, so there you goes, war in the east, war in the west, war in the south, war in the north, war in Mediterranean is building, war in South China Sea is building, and there also border war between China and India and quite a few other neighboring countries. Deep, deep world conspiracy, deep, deep world controversy. And don't forget you're listening to the World Conspiracy Talk Show with your host, Andrew P, and the Conspiracy Radio, and Share FM Radio. And there are a lot of standoff dispute border, standoff between China, India, and quite a few other neighboring country rich to be fair maybe not in all of them because i'm not privileged to all the full 100 percent facts but 
in many of these instances and circumstances, you can see where China has go overboard and using too much of their brute force and power and monopoly over other people. Deep, deep world conspiracy, deep controversy. Okay, and don't forget that India and China is the country with the two Morris population of people in the whole entire world and the whole universe planet which we live. And we would not like to see a war between China or India because that would be very bad not just for the Indians and for the Chinese but also we out here in the world, we the ordinary other people. Okay, that would be a very devastated move out here in the economy world and many other things because soon as war declare and war smoke is in the air there will be nothing but loan problem shortage of food scarce of oil many other things would be scarce short not even to mention the closing down of jobs factories laying off of people and many other things because when war fights, it come with all these things together, one package, okay? So if it does not affect we militarily, it will affect we financially, economically, or in trading, and something somewhere out there along the line, okay? So war between China and India is a no-no for Andrew P., on the World Conspiracy Talk Show. I don't know about for other people, but I would not like to see no war between Chinese and India or war between no countries. And I would not like to see no war in the Mediterranean between Turkey and Greece and France over Cyprus and any other else geographical, economical zone in the Mediterranean Sea. So deep, deep world conspiracy, deep, deep world controversy, and we will be back one more time again further down in the day with the next episode. Okay? We will be back again one more time with the next episode. And I want to say enough respect goes out to Okan. Big up yourself, youth, and you're welcome every time. So we're going to close off with the same song in which we start. Okay? And if it wasn't for the rain, which is about to fall, I would continue the program. But I had to end it now so I can save the recordings because there are a lot of lightning and thunders. And I wouldn't want the Wi-Fi to chip out and I lose the whole entire episode. So until we meet again, speak again, take care of yourself, all my people, all my listeners, peace and love and unity. Okay? Oneness. One people, one vice, one stand, one God, one unity. Until the philosophy which hold one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war is a war
Share FM radio number one, one. 